Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, David, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. So where are you taking this call from? Which magnificent city are you in? <laughs> I'm in upstate New York on the banks of the Hudson River at my country house right now. Oh, that's quite nice. So that's your your escape plan. <laughs> it's one of them. I actually split my time between here and Miami Beach. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have a pretty good conversation today because of your background and the work you're doing. But I think as a starting point for the audience, it would be great if you can give us a bit of a rundown of your career. Sure. I've had actually quite an eclectic career. So I started off um, as an economist, and then I moved within the bank that I was working within to about 12 different jobs over the space of 15 years. Um, yeah. The bank's philosophy was to create general athletes out of you. So you would yes. um, try one thing, um, do well in that. And if you, you know, if you did well, you'd be thrown into something completely different within 12 to 18 months. So I did that for a long time, moved to another financial institution. Then I decided quite abruptly that I wanted to um, be a player in strategy. I'd done strategic roles in the past, but yes. I, I kind of bridged into two major um, strategy firms where I was a managing partner and on the executive committee of both. Did that for a number of years, really loved that. And then about 12 years ago, I decided that my passion was really around coaching. So I actually started within that and kind of bootstrapped my way into that. But yes. over the over the years, I've accumulated, I think, some skill in that and some qualifications. And uh, that's been the best time of my life so far. And what prompted the shift into coaching? Was it something that you planned or it just happened? Um, I think it just, it happened over a period of time. I was reflecting on, um, as a banker, you know, the lots of accomplishments around um, tombstones of deals that you can look to and things yeah. like that. And then leading the world's first digital bank and stuff like that, which was fun. Um, but ultimately, I found that what was most fulfilling to me, and this, this may sound a bit corny, but it's genuine, is that uh, I really cared about being able to um, find and recruit great people and then yes. develop them. And then if I couldn't keep them for whatever reason, if I couldn't offer them a, a, a fast enough career path, then I would try and help them get to wherever they needed to be and, and remain lifelong friends. So that was the thing that really fulfilled me and gave me gratification. So I just wanted to do more of that. I really want to help people find their their own purpose and meaning and get clarity um, and personal growth where and when they most need it. So that's what I'm all about these days. And your work, I'm guessing, is international. It's not just the United States. Yeah, I've been global since I started work, actually. Yeah. So I've lived and worked all over the world. I've led global businesses, led global practices, and uh, my current practice is, is very global right now. Okay, so let's get into the nitty gritty of this, right? So you're coaching an executive. Mm -hmm. So you have a model that you use to bring out the best for them. Can you talk us through that model? Sure. So um, just to preface that, so... Um, I don't have any one application that sure. I use. I basically have many, many different frameworks and 
we kind of pick and choose depending on what resonates with the particular client for their particular needs. But there is an underlying philosophy around that. And my writing partner and business partner, Carol Kaufman, and I uh, call it MOVE, M-O-V-E. Mm-hmm. It's an acronym. Um, so very briefly, uh, we found that this characterizes great leaders or extraordinary leaders. So the first part, M, which is being mindfully alert to what we call three dimensions of leadership. It's really being very crystal clear on what you need to accomplish, but also being clear on who you want to be as a human while Mm -hmm. you're doing that, the kind of character strengths that you want to cultivate, the values that you have, and then also interpersonally, how do you best relate to others to, to both unlock their potential, but also to achieve what you want to achieve. So that's M. Um, O is about being an options generator. So um, coming from the strategy world, Uh, I really dislike only having one way to win. So Mm -hmm. we think that whether it's in strategy or in leadership, you need to have four more ways to win. So we help you actually create that through an options generator. Um, Then V is called vantage point. And that's another thing that has a big intersection with strategy, because when you think about it, um, our view of reality can be distorted by lots of things, by our personality, our beliefs, our assumptions, our worldview, uh, the frameworks that we use and the data that we select to look at. So we want to be able to take a hard look at reality and make sure that we're not distorting that because the people who see reality first are the ones who have an inherent advantage. So there's that. And then E is about engaging and affecting change as a leader. And that's where you take everything that you do as an individual leader and apply it at scale. So how do you get a followership? How do you actually get to implement and get leverage for your leadership? So that's in a nutshell what the model is. So it's the underlying philosophy that you bring to things. So all of these are interesting. I want to focus on the one on options generating because I used to be a corporate strategy partner and it's very common when you work with clients, companies, you generate options for them. I mean, that's like the centerpiece of strategy. There's always more than one route to get that. I've rarely seen that applied to personal coaching. So it's it's a refreshing take. It's intuitive because you could take that operating philosophy and apply it to a company as well. It would work just as well. You wouldn't have to just apply to a leader. So in your work, what prompted you to introduce options generation for clients? Was there a moment when you realize clients were not doing this? How did you bring that in? Oh, sure. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that, Michael. So um, what Carol and I have found um, through our observation of many senior leaders is that um, often you build a capability in pattern recognition, and that's been the basis of your success. So literally, if you see A and B, then you instantly know that C is the right answer. But if you're facing something that's new, it might be like a big new job that you've never done before with new stakeholders. It might be uh, a new technology that's disrupting and you don't know how to harness it or how to respond to it or how to um, mitigate the risk of that. Um, All those things, A and B don't necessarily mean C anymore. So uh, sometimes your reflexes can kill you, right? So if you're staring down a threat and you have only one playbook, that's not good. So that's where we decided that it would be best to help people unlock more and more options to have that, that vision. So it works in, you know, it can work in something. This is a really simplistic example, but um, if you decide that your goal is to, your target is to grow your business by 50% in three years, um, then there are many lines of effort that will support that. Right. And that's strategic, but the how, even in the strategy of how you get there, 
Um, there's many, many options, right? Like yes. you could go fast, you could go slow. You could have a series of small tactical moves that move up to that sort of add up to one big strategic move, or you could have one big strategic move. You could go heavy data or you could go heavy intuition, right? There's all kinds of different options yes. that you have there. But when you think about it individually, how do you cultivate your own character strengths or interpersonally? That's a whole interesting new dimension. So I'll give you an example on options for interpersonal. Is that okay? Yes, that'll be great. So when you think about um, success, a lot of leaders have had success by basically leaning in. They're very assertive. They give a lot of guidance. They have a strong point of view. And that can work in a lot of circumstances, but not at all, right? There's different options that you might have to, um, to deploy depending on the situation and the person or people that you're dealing with. So what we did was we kind of took the, um, the old evolutionary idea of um, reflexes around fight, flight, fright, and also what's called befriend yeah. to take those four fundamental reflexes. And we turned it in for leadership purposes to adapt it to four different options you can take. And we call them four stances. So one is lean in, one is lean back where you're asking more questions, being inquiry-based, um, phasing things out, just taking it a little bit easy. One is called lean with, which is um, collaborating with others, which is telling them that you're, uh, you have their back, that you believe in them, that you're encouraging them. And then one which is hardly ever deployed by leaders, but which is really important is what we call don't lean. So it's not freezing, yes. but it's just taking a moment to calm down, to deactivate, or also just to let something come to you in your intuition or to recognize that maybe you don't actually have to intervene as a leader right now. Maybe you just let the team go ahead and do it. So instead of just one sort of default stance is I'm going to lean in and tell you all the time. Um, that's not going to work for an introvert. <laughs> for example, yes. an introvert is going to be much more appreciative of you leaning with them, encouraging them or asking them some questions. So now you've got four options, lean in, lean back, lean with and don't lean. So that's an example of how the options generator can work. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So it's, it's the options in terms of the path you can take to get yep. to the same goal. Yes, exactly. So the first part, that part in M of being mindfully alert yes. to your goals is essentially what do you want to get done? Who do you want to be while you're doing it? And how do you want to relate? So that's being, you know, getting role, uh, goal clarity on those three dimensions. And then the options generator is how it's the pathway to achieve those. So let's switch gears a little bit, right? And let's talk about sort of the underlying motivation for clients. Yeah. So as an example, I once worked with a CEO of a very large resources company. She was the first female in that sector. And mm -hmm. I was the strategy partner working with her. But as the relationship evolves, you also become a kind of a coach to her. Mm -hmm. Very accomplished, very capable. And this was the first time I noticed a pattern in clients whereby they have what it takes, but at a certain point, it becomes too much for them. And they decide they're not willing to make the effort anymore. And mm -hmm. over time, I've realized that the common indicator I've noticed with clients who kind of give up is that they don't have a strong enough why. So as they're going through things, when it gets really tough, they don't have a strong internal reason for continuing. Mm -hmm. So in your coaching experience, when you're working with clients, 
Is that something that you try to get clients to understand the why of why they're doing things? And how do you get them to make sure that that is a strong enough why before they continue the journey? Oh, that's that's a great point. And you were, uh, as you were speaking, I was kind of heading there, but you got there yeah. before me. Um, so I think that, you know, motivation can be affected by many, many different things. So it could be um, just an overwhelm, particularly given the way the world's been over the last two years um, yes. and what we might be heading into. Um, it may be that you've just been in the seat so long and you need to be renewed in some way. And at some point, I think, you know, most of the executives that Carol and I work with uh, have um, steely determination and grit, right? They're going to yeah. go through any wall, but at some point in time, um, you can overplay that strength and it's not going to work for you anymore. So what you said is exactly right. Where we would go with them is to really try and explore their meaning and purpose, because that's going to be an energy source to them. It's going to be a source of fulfillment. It's like, why do you why are you doing this? For what reason? Yeah. Why are you here? And what I find is this is particularly powerful, um, whatever level of leader you're at, but particularly in the CEO space, you know, most CEOs jobs are 80% terrible. <laughs> They're yeah. doing things that you just <laughs> don't want to do talking <laughs> yeah. to people you don't really want to talk to. And, and 20% is, is, you know, beyond spectacular, but for that 80%, I find that you know, if you have a real sense of meaning and purpose, why you're doing this, why it matters, um, then you can take on almost anything and it's literally water off a duck's back, right? If, if you would, if I had to work with a group of stakeholders that I didn't particularly care for, um, that would be really painful for me in the absence of meaning and purpose. But when I got that, it's like, I'll talk to you all day long. It's not going to yes. matter at all because it's in the interest of a really important goal. Uh, not just to me, but hopefully to um, something bigger than me. And I've seen that over time, if you work with someone long enough, say over five years or 10 years, the the why evolves for them. It's naturally going to change. Do you take time to help them understand the implications of what the change in the why means for them? Is there that yeah, resetting great, moment? Great question. Um, so it changes for all of us. I think what's important is that you start the exploration of what matters to you, um, no matter what age you're at, right? You just get worked down, uh, write down a working hypothesis and there are ways to help you yeah. kind of surface what your own meaning and purpose is. And then once you've done that, you are inevitably going to reflect on that and then you're going to refine it. Uh, so one um, major CEO of a multinational company that I've worked with, uh, before he got in that seat, uh, many years ago, it was all about his individual star power, right? Yeah. So he was going to be the hero leader who would jump in and save the day and fight the bad guys and yes. win the day. And that was literally his purpose. And that's what drove him. And then when he got into the CEO seat, um, his purpose evolved into, I am a gardener who cultivates talent, which is yeah. like, that's a, a beautiful evolution. So zen -like. And yeah, so Zen-like and such... Um, I think a positive progression in terms of his humanity. Yes. That's very interesting. Did he make that change himself in his identity or did you prompt him to make that change? That happened over a long period of time. So he was supported by coaches early on in his career. And then he was also supported when he took over um, this seat as first time CEO of a big company. Yes. Uh, but he had, really reflected and evolved on that by himself over that period. But I think the impetus 
um, for this was that uh, he worked with someone to come up with this in the first place, like his initial meaning and purpose. And then at some point in time, it wasn't working for him and he figured out how to change it so that it really worked for the new him, basically. Yes, that's a good way of looking at it because when we hear these stories about people who changed, we forget it didn't happen overnight. No. It's a very, very slow process, especially successful people. Because when you're successful, oftentimes you are insulated from hearing negative feedback. Yes. And many times you're not just insulated from it. People don't want to tell you negative feedback because they worry that if they upset you, you're not going to promote them and you're going to derail their careers. And I've seen that many times. What I want to explore is how to reframe things. Let me give you an example of this because I'm sure you do it a lot. I once worked with one of the largest family-owned businesses in Latin America. And I was brought in to sit in on their strategy planning sessions. And you have all the generations sitting there. And there's even a 13-year-old in the strategy planning session. Wow. And there's a 89-year-old patriarch who runs the business and his <laughs> wife runs the business with him. And there was a lot of tension, a lot of conflict throughout the entire long weekends. It started on Friday all the way to Sunday. I remember Sunday at dinner, I'm thinking this is going to be a very bad end to this planning session because nobody's talking. And then I looked at what is happening and I needed to explain to the family heads what is happening. And basically, it's a generational struggle. You've got the young guns who understand certain things the older people don't understand. And you've got the older people who don't understand what they don't understand. And they're speaking across from each other, not realizing they're speaking a different language. And when you, I could reframe it for them that this is a generational clash, it's not that nobody appreciates the idea. You've got the young people saying, you did it badly. There's a better way to do it. So people are only seeing that lack of respect. And then Monday went fairly well because people understood that. What role do you play as a coach in reframing things for your clients to get them to see things from a different perspective? How important is that? I think that perspective taking is absolutely essential. So it's it's fundamental to the move model that Carol and I created in terms of the vantage point that you're looking at. Yes. Uh, but it's easier said than done just to, to take what the right vantage point is. So I think what you did was great because you... You took uh, people who were in, you know, in basically the same plane, but you zoomed yeah. out so that there was a bigger picture that they could all see and share in that. So I think that was really, that's very powerful. So, you know, we, we would do something analogous to that. We would also try and create the foundation for, you know, really authentic conversations amongst people yes. that may or may not be in conflict or may appear to have um, competing goals. And that's a combination of, you know, trust building that you, that would happen over time. It's about setting rules of engagement for people, which is this behavior is okay. This is not, um, which is also related to culture and also creating the conditions for psychological safety, you know, based on Amy Edmonds yes. and from Harvard's um, fundamental work. So I think all of those things actually have to work in tandem before um, a leader is likely to um, get the right perspective um, get the right inputs uh, and have people tell him or her the truth, or at least, you know, the whole truth and or not some version of their truth. Yes. I've also seen that part of the biggest obstacle we face when we coach clients, and maybe the word obstacle is wrong, it's, it's a path they need to go through, is that 
you could have the right tools, you could have the right framing and so on. But if the identity that client has for themselves is not the identity they need to have, it's very difficult for them to accomplish things. For example, if you're running a billion dollar division, and in your mind, that's the greatest accomplishment of your life. Nothing could be better than that. This is it. You've made it. It's very difficult for them to build a $5 billion division because it's not the identity. So when you work with clients, how do you identify if the identity may be the hurdle and how do you get them to move past that? That's a great point. It sort of reminds me of um, Carol Dweck's work on growth versus fixed mindset. So the fixed mindset is that, hey, I've run a billion dollars. That's kind of top of my game and you're not looking for anything more. So I think part of it is, so when when I look at potential or when Carol and I look at potential, there's kind of four dimensions to it. So um, one is is that determination and grit that we've talked about, but it's also about ambition, right? Being able to set your sights ever higher. And and that's not just for the sake of something bigger and better. It's just to have more and more meaning and purpose. So whatever is a higher ambition for you, you know, whatever works for you. So that is one aspect of potential. The other aspect of potential is how curious are you as a person? How interested are you learning? Are you interested in learning about other things, other people, points of view, yourself, your personal growth? So that's really important. And then within that, we know lots of people who are curious about lots of things, but they, you know, can't turn it to a commercial result (laughs) if their life depended on it. So there is insight as well. So how much insight have you got? And that's often linked to your strategic acumen. And then finally, what's your kind of level of engagement? So you know, do you, are you able to inspire people? Do you galvanize them? Um, Do you connect with them? Um, Do they admire you because of your values? So all of those things kind of together fuel um, human potential and how you can look at changing identity. So, or or fixing a mindset, not sure it's so much identity as it is just mindset and looking at possibilities. So we, we like to show them possibilities um, and encourage them to kind of build in their own mechanism to look for the possibilities. I've also seen different clients are driven by different things, mm. uh, culturally and where in the world they grew up. And so on. I know that if you look at the way American, I'm generalizing here, obviously, mm. but the way American coaching tends to operate is that it's about painting a vision of what could be better. Mm. It's almost an aspirational model. And it works, obviously, and it works for many people. But I've also seen some clients who are absolutely driven by a fear of failure. Mm. You don't have to paint a vision of the future. You just have to remind them where they came from. And they say, okay, I want to put that in my rearview mirror and let's move forward. So when you're working with clients, how do you determine what's that driving need? And then how do you modify your approach for them? What you just described in the second circumstance is what I would view as more of an extrinsic kind of danger yeah. that they're running from. So it's like, you know what, I just don't, um, where I've been, I don't feel safe. I don't feel valued. I don't feel recognized. I don't have status. I don't have enough financial recognition. And I'm going to, you know, use that as my motivation and fuel to get yes. ahead. And that's completely legitimate. Legitimate. It's just extrinsic. So those are external forces that are kind of driving you as a human. We're all, we all have those kind of forces. The other side of painting the vision uh, is more intrinsic, which is like, wow, what are the possibilities? What's out there? 
um, how can I realize that um, the world and life is not just about me and my bubble of family and friends, but there's something bigger and better out there or some more out there that I can connect with and possibly um, help and support. So I think those are just two, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic. So you have different, you, you have different um, kind of coaching techniques that are associated with yeah. that, but those are the two drivers. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying that everyone has both, but they're driven to a certain degree. It's stronger. Maybe it's 1% for one person, the fear factor, and it's 99% the vision, but it's always a combination. And at different stages in their careers, different ones would play more strongly. It is. Look, it's not realistic to have these, you know, altruistic, I'm going to um, help the universe. <laughs> and that's yes. all I care about. Like, that's just then then you're not human. Um, and it's also, you know, not optimal to be sort of down there focused entirely on status and recognition. Although that's a very legitimate thing to look at early in your career. And it's very likely that um, your intrinsic drivers will emerge after a period of time, right? When you've achieved some kind of threshold of status, um, recognition, um, love, um, and financial security, uh, you will probably change um, some of your drivers. So that can happen. Too. Yes. I remember many years ago, we were working on this economic report, and we had a Nobel laureate reviewing the data. Mm. And we're trying to figure out why does the United States productivity surge at certain moments in history. We're trying to figure it out. Mm. We had all these fancy reasons about trade and so on. And the guy looked at the data and looked at us and said, there's nothing like the fear of failure to motivate executives to move forward. And at this time, the United States was fearful of Japan and they pulled it together. So you're right. It's a combination. Mm. And I think that's the most important thing because often when you talk to clients, those who have traumatic memories tend to bring that forward and make that a defining reason why they want to change. But it's a balance. They're also driven by internal or intrinsic factors as well. So let's just switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about sure. a particular type of situation I've seen and how you have dealt with this. So I remember once dealing with an executive, and I actually knew this person when they were just a manager. And you know, as his career grew with me, he became a very capable operations executive. And he, the company would move him all over the world to deal with operations problems. And he was really good at it. So mm -hmm. any problem commercializing a mine, bringing a gas field online, they were behind schedule, they'll send him in and he'll bring it back to speed, mm -hmm. but also usually within budget. Mm -hmm. And impressive. He, yeah, <laughs> an impressive man mm -hmm. and a very humble man as well. You know, mm -hmm. spends a lot of time with the local workers and so on. He's a family man and a career man. He'd built his career around operations. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, we could see that he was in line to be CEO. But the company was not at a position whereby they needed an operator as CEO. They needed a deal maker. They were going through a huge M&A program and they wanted the next CEO, we felt, was going to be a deal maker as opposed to an operator. Mm -hmm. And I remember having this discussion with him where we were plotting out what his career is going to look like. You know, he's not a deal maker. So does this mean that He's going to be the best operator in his company, mm. or he's going to go to another company and become CEO where they need an operator. But if you leave your company, you're leaving all the institutional support you've built. You know, you're a star player because you've groomed other star players beneath you to support you, to execute your plans. Yeah. So if you leave, how do you recreate that? 
because it's a difficult task, right? We all, as humans, we always think we are successful because of what we've done, but we're supported by this huge supporting cast, which in his case, it built over, I think, 40 years at the firm. So yeah. as you coach people and to bring out their best and so on, how do you groom them or how do you prep them for also taking care of that support network they have that allows them to be successful? Because they need to be, first be cognizant that they're successful because of this mm-hmm. and then nurture it, develop it. Because I've seen many executives that don't really realize that and they burn too many bridges as they move up. Yeah. So um, what I do and what Carol do, and by the way, we do two-on-one coaching for sure. the most um, complex CEO on team situations is it's a very strengths-based approach. And you know, I'm sure you can count as I can countless executives who um, say, don't tell me what my strengths are, just tell me what I need to work on. Yeah, I've heard and, that too many uh, times. Yeah, and I, I used to be one of those. <laughs> but I can, I can sincerely <laughs> You've learned. You've tell moved you, on. I have, I have actually seen the value of understanding my strengths yes. because I'm going to build on those strengths and project them in new ways to be successful going forward. So part of this is just not just an awareness of your strengths, but um, just really feeling it in, in your body, um, the value of those strengths. So I think that's one thing. Another thing is, and I don't know what the case would have been for this particular talented executive that you were talking about, but when you move into a CEO role for the first time, yeah. uh, it is by definition, something that is bigger and broader and scale and scope and with more stakeholders than you've ever seen before. So it's new. Yes. So you have to be able to step into new things. And that's very difficult for people who have built their careers, like fine careers and accomplished careers on the basis of specialization, even, even in something as broad as operations, you know, he was specialized yes. in that area, but there's still ways to play. So the important thing is uh, one great leader that I worked with um, was talking about, you know, success stepping into a CEO role for the first time. And, of course, I've got all these accelerated integration playbooks that I could deploy. Yes. And I said, so what What do you think the secret yeah. is? And he said, uh, do what only you can do. Yes, and I, I was just kind of startled because what it meant was often when people step into a role and they've been specialized uh, and they step into this role that's bigger than anything they've done before and broader, um, they'll keep doing what they were doing right? They'll apply the same skills and just focus on the operations aspect of the business. Uh, Or if they really are not confident, they'll micromanage and second guess everybody if they don't in the areas that they don't understand, or they'll just focus on the stuff that they like and care about. None of those are good strategies, right? So when you think about it, when you step into a CEO role, what is it that only you can do? Only CEOs can kind of, um, not develop the strategy, but they can sign off on the strategy. Only CEOs can do hiring and firing. Only CEOs can do compensation strategies and so on. So focus on the stuff that only you can do. And even if you're not an expert in the other areas, you have to obviously assemble the right um, team. So in this case, if you're if your um, person had become CEO, he'd have to have a stellar deal maker, and then know how to engage with that deal maker, and also know how to trust but verify. Right, just be yes. able to go double click on a couple of issues to make sure that that individual knew what they were talking about, and then have a wide network so that um, you could triangulate to make sure that the results, that the answers were correct. 
So I think there's just, there's many ways of doing it, but you know, everybody faces that as a first time CEO. It's like, wow, I actually don't know how to do this job. Now, how do I do it? Yeah. In this particular case, the strategy we developed for this executive is that he was able to convince the board that it's one thing to do the acquisitions, but you've got to integrate them. Mm -hmm. And you must not forget that while the acquisition gets the headline, the integration pays the bills. And he managed to get the top job and brought in a new CFO to spearhead up the M&A side of things. And it makes a lot of sense because it does play yep. to his strength. He's not forcing the company to pick him because he wants it, but he's changed the frame of reference to what happens after the deal. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's just, you know, we can boil down all value creation into um strategic positioning and execution. So if you can get someone to help with the strategic positioning, then if you drive the execution, there's a lot of value to be created there. So that's a good yeah. strategy. And I think it's always about, one of the things I've seen with good leaders is they don't put their needs first. They'll ask, what does the company need? And how do I give the company what it needs? And if you're always thinking in that way, I think as a leader, you also grow because sometimes you don't have what the company needs. You've got to figure out how to develop the skill set. I think good leaders are always thinking, what does the company need? What do stakeholders need? What do shareholders need? What role can I play in doing this? And yeah. I find those conversations are the most insightful when you have them with leaders. Well, that's that curiosity and the recognition that you know we are all incomplete in some way. And we have to find ways of completing ourselves, whether it's personal growth or getting the right team around us or getting other assets to advise us. Do you think anything has materially changed post-COVID in the way leaders are either developing themselves or the questions they've asked they've been asking themselves? Uh, two big things. I think one is um, and this is what I what I coach leaders on right now, uh, because we've been playing catch up and we've been playing defense. And yes. so when you really think about it, um, great leaders today are putting a real premium on detecting new things in the environment so that once they see something, you know, two or three unrelated data points that are seemingly unrelated, yes. uh, they can start connecting those dots and then they can start getting ahead of things. So I see a lot of investment in um, detection assessment and you know responding through contingency yes. plans. They're doing a lot of that, which I think is, um, that's gotta be the way forward because you're always gonna be on the back foot, right? So today, if you don't have a house view on inflation, you're way behind the times, but what's gonna be next, right? What's What are the two or three things that can happen to us next? And what can we do? We can't always be prepared for it, but we can sort of anticipate some things and prepare for them. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is I find that increasing, this was a trend pre-COVID, but you know this notion of the kind leader or the compassionate or generous yes. leader. So when Carol and I talk about the three dimensions of leadership, what do you need to get done? Who do you wanna be? And how do you relate to others? Um, a lot of leaders are kind of putting the last two of those dimensions first now. So instead of like focusing first on the goals and then who they want to be as humans, how they want to relate, they're putting people first. So those dimensions are coming first. So they're really thinking through about like, how do I want to be as a leader? Do I want to have perspective? Do I want to be fair? Do I want to be seen and believed to be listening? Um, and then in terms of relating, am I going to be nurturing? Am I going to create a safe environment for people? Am I going to create a culture of learning and development? 
And then let's get at what do we need to get done with that? So I think there's a kind of a reprioritization of the, those three dimensions a little bit. So I've definitely seen an increase in the amount of, I would say, discourse and the language about caring, nurturing, and so on. But at the same time, I don't see many company policies changing much. Mm. So, so whenever I look at a company talking about anything, I look at two things, which is what's the incentivization or compensation model? Mm. What are they incentivizing you to do? Because that's more important than what they tell you they want you to do. Mm -hmm. The second one is what policies have materially changed? Because I remember there was a time when all the bankers, the CEOs were saying things like, the world has changed. We're competing with tech companies. We've mm -hmm. got to let our young bankers work from home. But if you look today, they're all bringing them back to the office. The policies are coming back in. All those major incentives at play are being stripped away. So I'm not picking on banks here by any measure. What I'm yeah. trying to get a sense of is how much of it is the acceptable language we speak today versus material change on the ground. Oh, that's that's a great point, Michael. So I think you know there's there's always a gap in internal coherence between what you say and what we do yeah, <laughs> as true. individuals and as organizations. So I think we all have a long ways to go on that. But I think uh, a couple of things. So um, yes, the compensation model drives things. I always think of culture and policy as this is what gets rewarded. So whether it's through compensation yeah. or resources that you're granted or even time and attention of senior people, it's like that, those are the broadly speaking, the, the incentives and your policy needs to be aligned with those incentives to get the behaviors that you want. So, you know, even in, um, I, I definitely agree the headlines um, with banking uh, in that particular example, those are mostly for investment banks. Yes. That's so true. if you look at sort of broader based retail, commercial banks, insurance companies and the like, um, they have actually changed their policies and have been quite sensitive to um, what the professed needs of their employee base are. So I think that you got to segment that a little bit. I think the challenge for investment banks, and I empathize with the struggle, is um, you do want to um, be as supportive as you can to employees but those are apprenticeship models yeah. and it's not like um, us as consultants out on the road, you know, where you can actually transmit the culture through small teams and yeah. um, dinners and stuff when we're able to travel. Um, but with investment banks, it really is close quarters apprenticeship. So I think that's what they're really struggling with genuinely. Yeah, and also work-life balance too, which is an endless kind of struggle in an investment bank. Well, you have alluded to a certain point where I think we often overlook this is that the CEOs don't have all the answers. They know the right questions. They know what they have to do. But as you said, they've got to figure out how to do it. And it's going to largely be a trial and error process, right? Yep. Yep. Well, that's why what when we think about this, the, one of the most important jobs for a CEO is to express what we call leader's intent. And that's not to be incredibly prescriptive about what needs to be done and how it needs to be done, but it's much higher level about you know this, hey, this is where we're going. Um, this is why we're going there to imbue everyone with a sense of kind of meaning and purpose of why our, our direction is important. Then talking about the major lines of effort, which map closely to strategy, and then very loosely prescriptive about how we're going to get there, right? Because there's yes. many different pathways to get to the right answers, as we talked about in the in the options generator. So the, the idea with this is how do you send the right signals? 
so that you can effectively decentralize your mission throughout the entire organization so that people can be inside your head as the CEO or as another senior leader and know what it is that you would do if you were facing the same conditions they're facing because they're on the front lines in conditions in real time and that stuff is coming at them and they need to process it, but they need some guidance um, around decision-making and behaviors. And that leader's intent helps them be inside your head so that when you're not there, they can make decisions that are consistent with what the company's mission is. So that's, that's possibly the most important thing that, um, that a CEO can do. I like what you said there, because if you want to be a CEO that brings out the best in your teams, you definitely cannot micromanage them and you cannot have a 400 page manual prescribing yeah. <laughs> behavior. It's just not possible. But yeah. what you have to do as the leader is you've got to determine what are the 10 most important principles that I use to make decisions and how do I teach everyone in the company those principles so that when I'm not there, they, we, at least we're going to be making decisions that are congruent. And we're not going to be going in different directions because we've been talking about investment banking and management consulting. We both come from roughly the same area, but you know, in management consulting, we've got in incredibly smart people. And I can tell you right now, as you know, every consulting partner thinks they're the world's best strategy thinker and nobody's better. Than so <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you can't really tell someone what to do, but if you share the same principles, you know that even if the other person does something different, it's going to be driven by the same principles. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, we talk about leadership and so on, yeah, and the discussion is always about coaching leaders. But really, the number one role of a leader is to coach someone who's going to replace them. It's that bench, right? Mm -hmm. Having that deep bench. And if your principles are not clear, it's very difficult to build that deep bench. That's what I've seen. Because how do you get people not to think like you, but to know what is important to you? And we, we call it sending leadership signals and being very clear and very consistent in those leadership signals so that people don't get confused or that you don't reverse yourself. So leader's intent is definitely one part of that. And then you reinforce that leader's intent by your own behaviors. So you, know, you, you have to be the role model. So yes. you can send very small signals about how you value individuals, how you value the organization, just through your behaviors. And those have massive ripple effects. So we're always kind of looking for, just like in strategy, you know, what are the one or two things, what are the one or two levers you can pull on or the one or two behaviors you can have that will create disproportionately positive impact throughout the organization. And that role modeling is, is one of the most powerful things that you can do in terms of sending signals. Yes, I remember I was reading your book, uh, Real-Time Leadership. One of the things I noticed about the writing style is it's very soothing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I can honestly say that's one of the reasons I continued reading it, because I do find today's literature and business either tends to be shaming to a sense or blaming to a sense, or the world's going to end and we have to do something about it. And it <laughs> becomes like noise in the background after a while. So when I was reading your book, I found your book that you wrote with your colleague, Carol, is that it's very soothing. It's a peaceful to learn these principles without people almost shouting in the background. No, I don't know if you. that was the intended style, but I found it very easy to read it because when you're reading something soothing, you slow down and you can take time to reflect. And if that was yeah. the intended purpose, I think that was a very good style you guys chose for the book. 
Well, thank you, because for us, that mindfulness, that reflection is the way that you slow down time and that you do real-time leadership. So that's a very important um, thing to us. So we, we also were, you know, in the literature, there's a lot of stuff about what do you do under crisis? Everybody's under threat, yes. everybody's under crisis. And, and we accept that and we talk about how to deal with that. But we're also looking at opportunity. Like, how do you approach these opportunities that might be 10x anything that you've ever um, dreamed of? Yes. And how do you access those? So it's not just about threats, it's about opportunities and how do you get that? And we also feel that, you know, if we work with you um, and impart messages through this book that make you, you know, more effective at achieving your goals, uh, we think we failed if that's all we've done. What we really want to do is to help make you move from a great person to an extraordinary person by being an even better human being. So for us, it's all about, you know, your personal growth edge is not just in your leadership capability. It's in your character and your values that you're cultivating too. So those, those are all dimensions. And, um, and that's something that should be imparted in a soothing way, right? That's the way yes. that people can receive it. And I think one thing you've alluded to, which is very important, and I'll just expand on it for the audience listening to this is that, I think many of us are dealing with crisis moments in business and leadership. That's normal. Leaders are put into solving mm -hmm. difficult problems, but that doesn't mean you're in a crisis mode as a leader. Exactly. Your life can be very calming, very soothing, even if you're dealing with a crisis. And that's the thing that I think a lot of leaders forget, whereby sometimes they end up mirroring a situation mm -hmm. when what they need to be doing is just getting people to step back and reflect on what is happening. And I think what's nice about the style of writing is that you almost feel that effect when you're reading the book. So a lot of oh. books, they, they will tell you to do something, but you don't feel it. But here you talk about mindfulness, but you see it in the style of writing. Even the oh, case studies you. you used, even the way you sanitize the case studies were done in a very clean mm -hmm. format because you're almost stripping out emotion from the mm -hmm. stories to separate the individual from the moment. And you're saying, okay, this is the individual. The moment is different. And how do we guide this individual through the moment? And I like that style of writing. It's a very unusual style. So good job. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate that. So I enjoyed this conversation. I think it's been one of the better podcasts we've done. I think our audience is going to love it. Is there anything Excellent. you want to add before we wrap up here? No, I just appreciate the time. And um, I think that, you know, if you look at the principles in this, it's something that you can do literally in real time, whether it's in this moment and you've got a snap decision that you have to make, or it can also be something that um, can take you six months or an entire career to achieve. It's really real-time leadership is just about making the most of each moment. So, you know, hopefully we can help you do that so that, um, you know, life is short. So you do want to make the most of every moment that you've got. So, And to build on what you're saying, I think that the most important thing for leaders is that leadership training, for lack of a better word, is ongoing. You know, even if you're at the top of your game, the game's going to change and you need to evolve. You have to constantly be in a state of learning new ways to adapt, adjust, reflect, and so on. So thank you so much, David. Absolute pleasure. Thank I'm you. looking forward to having you on the show later. Thank you so much. Look forward to it as well. Take care. Ciao. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, 
and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.